Amen. As you know, the church is not perfect. There's not any group of individuals ever gathered together that have perfection. We're sinners that have been saved by God's grace. And one of the things that I really appreciate about the book of Acts is that you find that there was real problems in this early church. And we talk about and speak about, well, we've got to get back to the book of Acts and do it the way they did at the beginning. And that's true. I think it's very organic. It's simplistic. There's a purity about it. And churches always need to be looking back to the model of the book of Acts. But also, too, even as you see it at its beginning stages, there were difficulties and there were challenges that had to be worked through. And please remember the reason that we're committed to church is because Christ is committed to the church. The church, not just our church, but churches in totality are the bride of Jesus Christ. They mean everything to Christ. And so we're committed to the church because Christ is committed to his church. He's present in his church. So you're probably not surprised that there is a dispute that needs to be settled in the early church. And how they handle it as a church leadership is a great model for churches when we have disagreements inside of a body believers, but it's also a great learning lesson for us when we have disputes in relationships. There's going to be disputes that happen in relationships, and where do you go? What do you turn to? And yes, the dispute is about circumcisions, especially do Gentile believers have to be circumcised and go under the law. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 15. And if you're taking notes, there's be several sections. The first section is the dispute. So verse 1. A certain, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they come from Judea, from Jerusalem, and they come down even though geographically they're going up. But anytime that you're leaving Jerusalem, you're always going down because it expressed the importance of the temple. They're going out on their own missionary journey to all of these Gentiles that have received Christ as their Savior, declaring, well, that's wonderful that you believe in Christ, that you've received grace for the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus has died for you and rose again. But if you're really serious about your commitment to Christ, if you really want to be a disciple of Christ, if you really, really meant it, then you've got to be circumcised. Also, then you have to go under the law. They've got to go back to the first five books of the Old Testament and fulfill the Levitical law that was given to the children of Israel. This has a huge ramification upon their lives. Yes, the physical discomfort for men to get circumcised, but that's just the beginning of it. It's really this idea that we're sanctified by the law, that it's going to be through keeping the Sabbath, eating kosher, being circumcised, sacrificing lambs on the Passover. All of these things are going to make us more like Christ Jesus. This is a huge topic, and it's actually an attack on the gospel. It's an attack on that Jesus Christ is sufficient, and he died for our sins and rose again. The work was complete. Notice what they say here. It says, you cannot be saved. If you do not get circumcised, if you don't go under the law, you're going to hell. And there's certain things that we can agree to disagree on, but there's other things that demands a dispute. It demands an argument. And when it comes to the issue of the gospel, we've got to make sure that we get that right. How do people go to heaven? 
How do people go to hell? So, so very important. So this is what's happening. So in verse 2, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas, they resist these men that come out of Judea. And they say, hey, wait a second. You're telling me that we've got to go back under the law? Jesus fulfilled the law. He did it perfectly. And through his death, his resurrection, then why do we have to go back under and be held under those requirements? Maybe you've heard this, and it's a good rule of thumb. In the non-essentials, there can be diversity. So if it's not an issue of of salvation, we can have diversity in non-essentials. But in essentials, we must have unity. But then, in all things, we need charity, which is love. So this is an essential on how people are saved. So Paul and Barnabas, they dispute this. And they decide, we need to go down to Jerusalem. What's at stake here? If this isn't solved, it's going to be the first church of the circumcision. Can you believe it? They're like, hey, we're so proud of the fact that we keep the law that now we're the, we're the first church of the circumcisions. We're the first ones to make sure that these Gentiles were circumcised. Why did they care? Why is this such a big deal to these particular Hebrew Jewish believers? You have to understand, going back to the, the Old Testament, that Abraham was the first to receive circumcision. It was a sign of the covenant. And under the Old Covenant... If you came into the Jewish community and believed in the one true living God, all the males had to be circumcised to be the sign of the covenant. So it wasn't that they just picked this out of the air somewhere. It's coming from that background in the Old Testament. Here's an application. There's some things in our lives that need to be talked about. I want us to think about this in a church setting, but I also want us to think about it in a relational setting. Sometimes there needs to be a dispute. A loving one a robust conversation, but it needs to be talked about. What if they would have just said, I don't want to have an awkward conversation. This is too difficult. Maybe there's going to be a breach in relationship, so are you going to sweep it under the rug? It would have been a catastrophe. And a lot of times that happens in our relationships as well. There's an issue that's going on in marriage. There's an issue that's going on with kids. There's an issue that's going on with close friends. And we can be afraid to bring up some of the tough topics but they need to be brought up to speak the truth in love. You've got to say it. You've got to say it straight. You've got to say it lovingly. We talked about this at the, the marriage retreat. And Paul and Barnabas, they need to bring it up. They need to say it. They need to say it straight, but they need to say it lovingly. Maybe you know there's a conversation that you need to have. I don't enjoy that. I usually have to have some biblical exhortation to get me to that place of going, I need to have this conversation. I tend to be that one that says, well, I don't know if I need to bring that up. May God give you discernment because there's things that you don't have to bring up. If, you know, you're upset about the toothpaste, I would suggest letting that go. In the Proverbs, it talks about the fool vents all of his feelings. So this isn't a license to just go and puke on everybody because you've got a little bit of a disagreement. But if it's something that is hindering the word of God, if it has to do with sound doctrine, if it's a breach in relationship then it's worth having that loving, difficult conversation. So now they're headed to the source, to Jerusalem, to try to sort this out. Verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria 
describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. They're in Antioch, which is northern Syria. They're coming down to Jerusalem, and they're passing through Phoenicia, Samaria, visiting the churches, and they're telling everyone, this is what God's done among the Gentiles. When we were out on our missionary journey, this is how we got, saw God bring Gentiles unto salvation, and it brought joy to the churches. And we want to bring joy wherever we go, not whenever we go. You know what I'm saying? We want to be that instrument of this is the testimony of the Lord, and this is what God's working has been. In verse 4, and when they'd come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. So we see an openness from the elders in Jerusalem to have this difficult conversation. They're not defensive. We're going to see they're engaged here in a few minutes, but they're open to it. And we need to have that kind of attitude when someone says, can I talk to you for a second? There's something I'd like to bring up to you. Saying, okay, then I want to have an open heart to those kind of conversations. You know, someone shared with me today, a best friend isn't going to be worried about my feelings. Does that make sense? Because they care more about your well-being. So if they have to have a conversation with you, they will. In verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there are those in Jerusalem amongst the church. Here we find Pharisees who believed. So Pharisees who believed Christ as the Messiah, they died for their sins and rose again, but they wanted people to keep the law. They wanted people to be circumcised. Now please, this is important because I think you're going to encounter it at times in your relationship with the Lord, is this idea of grace plus has never died. So it's wonderful that you trust Christ in your salvation, but now we need to add these works to your salvation. And a lot of times it does come in terms of the law. You're going to run into people that are going to say, well, if you're really serious about Christ you're going to observe the Sabbath. You're going to make sure that you only worship on the Sabbath. That's the day. Oh, you worship on Sunday? Well, that has pagan roots, and you've really compromised. Well, let's think that through all the way. In Colossians 2, it tells us that those were foreshadowing Christ. It's just the shadow of, of Jesus Christ. If you've been away from your spouse, say, on a business trip, and you come home, and you see her, and there's her shadow, you could kiss the shadow, on the sidewalk if you wanted to, but you might as well embrace Christ. So this Sabbath was just foreshadowing Christ. The feasts were foreshadowing Jesus Christ. The early church in the book of Acts, they met on the first day of the week, which was, was Sunday. So there is freedom to celebrate the feasts. I love the feasts. They point to Jesus Christ. You have the freedom in Christ to celebrate the feasts. A Jewish believer who received Christ as their Savior would celebrate the feast, understanding that Christ was the fulfillment. But there's also the freedom not to celebrate the feast. There's also the freedom to say, Sunday's the day that I'm going to set aside to, to work. And that's not what these guys are saying. They're saying, if you want to be saved, you have to do this. If you want to be sanctified, you have to do this. There's something about our flesh, isn't there, that really likes the law. Because then we can take credit for it. We can say, I'm doing really good at keeping the Sabbath. And those guys over there, they're slouch Christians. 
They don't love Jesus quite as much as I do. And check out my kosher diet. Now, hear me out. You can have a kosher diet. If you want to do that under the Lord, you do that under the Lord. But that doesn't make you any more righteous than someone who who doesn't keep a, a kosher diet. But that trip that can be laid on upon us, it really appeals to our flesh because when we're fulfilling it, we can boast. But what happens when we don't fulfill it? Then we walk in condemnation. So verse 6, if you're taking notes, first there's the dispute, and then there's the discussion. Now the apostles and the elders came together and considered this matter. This is good leadership. This is good leadership. If there's a dispute in the church that's of importance, not of non-importance, but if it's of importance, then the elders, the pastors, they should get together and they should consider the matter. In prayer, what does the word of God say? What is God doing? What's, what's the spirit of God? Needing there to be the right answer and God's wisdom inside of this. This would take quite a bit of work to get all these guys together. Paul and Barnabas, they travel a great length, but it's worth it to them because they need to get God's wisdom. Think of what the outcome would be if they didn't take the time to have the discussion and seek out what God's heart is. Also, this is a great model for us in relationships. Conflict is an opportunity for growth, isn't it? A dispute is an opportunity for growth if we handle it right. So say there is a dispute inside of your home. What do you do? You get together with your wife. You get together with your kids if necessary. Say, let's talk about it. Let's lovingly talk about it. Let's put the issues on the table. And it's not whoever can shout the loudest. It's not who has... The most passion, but it's what does God's word have to say? This really settles marriages, settles families when we decide, you know, we want to follow the Lord. And so what God has to say on this particular issue is what we're going to follow. With friends, sometimes there needs to be a loving discussion where you come to the table and you consider the matter in prayer. In verse 7, when there had been much dispute, so notice these guys are going for it. They're they're passionate about this. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. This is Peter's experience with Cornelius. When God gave him the vision to eat of the unkosher meat, and Peter's like, no, I've never had anything unclean. The vision, God speaks to him and says, what I have made clean, you don't call common or unclean. Then there's a knock at the door by some Gentiles saying, will you go to Cornelius' house? Peter goes. While he's sharing the gospel, they respond in faith and receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit and start to speak in tongues and Peter was then amazed by God's heart for the Gentiles. And notice what he says here. God chose among us that through my mouth that they would believe. God knows the heart, acknowledging them, giving them the Holy Spirit. So there's no distinction between us and them. There was a huge divide between Jews and Gentiles. Good Jews would pray and thank God that they weren't created as a Gentile. They were the untouchables. You would never have dinner with them. You wouldn't have them into your house. So you can see how God has worked in Peter's heart and life 
where he says there's no difference between us. We're saved the same way by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're filled with the same spirit. And hopefully we've not adopted any kind of view of anyone else that we're above them. That we should have this attitude that there's no distinction between us and them. We're both created by God. We're loved by God for whom Christ died. It's a really important understanding. In verse 10, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? It's a good question. The yoke of the law is something that Israel failed in terribly at the Old Testament. Also, this group of men had fallen short of the law to the degree where they crucified Jesus Christ. But yet, they're wanting to put this burden onto new believers. We need to be careful that we don't put extra biblical burdens upon others, burdens that we ourselves aren't able to bear. And yet, we tend to do that. And I think a lot of times it's because we love someone and we don't want to see them get into an area of sin. So we think, well, I'm going to protect them by putting these rules on them. I'm going to protect them by putting these laws on them. We never want to back away from Scripture, but we don't want to add things to people that God hasn't put on them. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What we need to be pointing to is walk with Jesus. Walk in his yoke. It's a finished work. He died for you. He, he loves you. He's paid the price. And our job, our joy, our responsibility is now to walk with him. Jesus, what, what do you have for us? And maybe just examine that for, for just a moment. Is Are we beginning to place stuff on other people that we weren't able to bear? In verse 11, it says, We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So instead of extending burdens that we can't even live up to ourselves, we want to be extending the grace to them that we've received. Church, if we could get this, man, it would be awesome. But we receive grace from Christ more than we even realize. We receive it freely in the past, in the present, in the future. And when the light bulb goes on, that I've received grace not to be a container, but to be a distributor. So now I'm going to start distributing that kind of forgiveness and that grace to other people, realizing that I wasn't saved by works, so now I'm not going to require other people to be saved by works. Do works have their place? Absolutely. They're the evidence of an act of faith, but that's not what's being discussed here. Works are out of a response to grace, not a responsibility to earn or deserve grace. The church kind of historically has been really good at this. At certain generations, certain things were taboo. Like, you may grew up in a church setting where it was a sin to play cards. That's kind of passed away in a lot of circles. But I know Amber's grandparents, that's kind of what the thing was. And for a long time, you just weren't allowed to play cards because it was considered to be a sin because it led to gambling. Like, if you play cards and you're going to end up at Cripple Creek and that's going to be, be, be the end of you. And I think it was well intending, not wanting to see, see people gamble, but it's not in scripture, right? It's nowhere in scripture where it says, thou shalt not play cards. And you can play cards and enjoy cards and talk about the things of Christ and build a lot of great friendships. God used pinochle in my parents' life to bring them to Christ. They went and played pinochle with their neighbors 
Their neighbors were unsaved, but got invited to a Bible study. So unbelievers got invited to a Bible study, invited my parents, who were their pinochle partners, and my parents got saved at the Bible study. God uses pinochle. He can do it, you know? <laughs> and there was a time where going to movies was the taboo thing to do inside of the, the church of God. Now, there are some movies that we should not be watching. Can I get an amen, you know? However, it's not wrong to watch a movie. There's a lot of great movies that you can sit down with your family and enjoy a great time. I think that, that Christ would have sat down with friends, sat down with his family and enjoyed a movie and invested in that way in that time and then been able to have a discussion afterwards. And so we need to kind of examine things in our lives and go, where did I come up with this? You know, did I get it from the word of God or did I kind of get this from the tradition of men? And man's yoke, it leads us to a place of burnout. It leads us to a place of confusion, disgust. But the yoke of Christ, it's refreshing. And, oh man, I'm walking with Jesus and Christ is leading me in this way. In verse 12, then all of the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God worked through them among the Gentiles. So they're recounting, look, we, this is what we saw God do. We saw God bring Gentiles to salvation and begin to change and transform their lives. Notice what the other guys are doing that has an opposing view. They're listening. So when there's a dispute that happens in the church or in our family or relationships, first is have a robust, loving conversation, an honest, truthful conversation, and then have a sit down at the table meeting, a discussion where points of views can be shared, God's word can be brought into it, you can get the multitude of, of counsel, but then somebody's got to listen. Someone's got to step back and go, I need to hear what you're, you're saying. God gave each of us two ears and one mouth. I'm looking out at you guys and you've been blessed with two ears. I've been blessed with two ears. Do the math. God probably wants us to listen twice as much as we speak especially in a dispute, especially in a conflict. These guys sit and they listen. Verse 13, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. James waits for the right opportunity to speak. He waits till Paul and Barnabas are silent. Nobody else has anything to say. He's taken in the information. He receives the word from the Lord. He gets God's heart on the situation. I know these are basic principles, but try it. If there's a conflict, have a discussion. Try listening first. Wait until there's a good opportunity to talk. Don't talk over someone. Don't interrupt someone. Speak at the right time. He says, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles, also known as Peter, to take out of them a people for his name. So God was taking out a group of people from the world for his name's sake, to be in relationship with him. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now he's bringing in the Old Testament. He's quoting Amos chapter 9. They're going to make a decision based off of God's word. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So God was going to rebuild the temple 
so that Gentiles could come into relationship with him. It was always God's heart to use the nation of Israel to reach the world, which was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of David, to be that branch that reaches Jew and Gentile. Gentiles being saved was always inside of the heart of God. In verse 18, know to God, known to God from eternity are all of his works. That's something to meditate. Let's read that one more time. Known to God from eternity are all of his works. What James is saying, this is the half-brother of Jesus Christ who's standing up and, and speaking, who's come to know Christ as his Savior. He's saying God knew this before eternity, from eternity, that Gentiles were going to come into relationship with him. This is no surprise to God. Now, God's plan is often a surprise to me. <laughs> I'm like, I did not see this coming. Many times it's hindsight. It's 2020. Hindsight, we're able to look back and see God's plan. But he knew all along. This is a pivotal part of the learning for us, is when we're in a dispute, we're in a discussion, we're having a conversation if someone needs to have the lens of going, well, what does God's word say on this particular issue? So you're trying to make a decision with the kids. And there's a dispute between mom and dad. Kids are really good at worming their way in between mom and dad, right? Go to God's word. Well, what does God's word say about this issue? Maybe if you're single and you've got some roommates and there's a difficulty with those roommates. Someone needs to get clarity from the word of God and say, well, what does God's word say on this particular issue? And God brings direction into the discussion. In verse 19, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Sometimes we can cause God's people much more trouble than blessing, can't we? That's a good prayer for us. Is God, I want to be a life-giving instrument in people's lives. I don't want to cause them trouble. I don't want to cause them stumbling. In verse 20, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Ask them to do three things, to abstain from things polluted by idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, things strangled, and from blood. What's the thought process behind these things? Let's go with the obvious first, sexual immorality. First Thessalonians tells us that it's the will of God that we abstain from sexual immorality, that we know how to possess our vessels for honor. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that Christ lives inside of us. The Spirit of God lives in the very side of us. So when we engage in sexual sin, we're actually joining Christ. We're joining the Holy Spirit to that action, to that sexual sin. It's very important to, to the Lord, sexual purity. And sexual purity doesn't end when you get married. It's something that continues on into your marriage. It, it continues if you're in that place of, of singleness. And so it's a way that we express to God as being a living sacrifice. These other two, polluted by idols and also things strangled. This is staying away from idolatry and specifically causing their Jewish brethren to stumble. 
You know, if they're eating things that have been polluted by idols, that, that's going to cause a Jewish believer to stumble. If they're eating things that are strangled and have the blood in it, that's going to cause their Jewish brother to stumble. And in our freedom, we don't ever want to cause someone to sin in our freedom. We want to consider them and be able to serve them in that way. <clears throat> so we've had the debate, the dispute, we've had the discussion, and now we've got the decision in verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Notice that there's unity. It pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church. They knew this was God's heart, that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to go under the law. And when we're looking for God's decision amongst God's people, most of the time there's going to be unity. If everybody's in the spirit and everybody's willing to acknowledge the word of God, guess what? Going to come into agreement. When a group of elders get together to talk about something and make a decision, as they're in prayer and as they're in the word, the Lord brings them together in unity. In the same way, inside of our families, in relationships with Christians. And we know that God has set up an order inside of the church, and he's also set up an order inside of the home, that men are to be the servant leaders in the home, they're to be the head of their homes. But this doesn't mean, men, that we don't ever get the input of our wives, that there's not a discussion. There's not a, let's consider this matter. What does God have to say? What's godly counsel? Because you both belong to the Lord. In Ephesians 5, it also says, submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. So I think most of the time, most of the time what's going to happen in a godly marriage, if there's a dispute, is a husband and wife are going to come into a loving conversation, get all of the information out, consider God's word, then they're going to come together in unity on God's decision. It's not the husband's decision. It's not the wife's decision. This is God's decision. And we've decided we want to do it God's way. There may be the few exceptions. Sometimes in marriage where, where the husband has to pull the leadership card and say, hey, look, this is the deal. I'm the head of the house and I need to make this decision. But that's going to be the few exception if a husband and wife are willing to go to, through this process to get into God's word, just like we see in Acts 15. And husbands, we should have the humility to go, you know what, I totally thought this coming into this conversation, but I was wrong. This doesn't line up with the word. In fact, this doesn't even make sense. And this is really God's decision in this situation. And sometimes the wife to go, you know what, I was wrong. This is what I thought going into it, but now God has led us through the word. So it's not the husband having the last word or the wife having the last word, but God having the last word. Amen? So we see a, a beautiful exercise of coming together in unity. Now it's time to communicate this decision, and they send the representatives, Judas and Silas, to deliver the message in person, but they also want to put it down in writing. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, 
you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command. <laughs> Could you imagine how unsettling it would be? What? I've got to get circumcised? No bacon cheeseburgers? I've got to keep the law? And they say, no, we didn't send these guys out. We are not the ones that sent these guys to go tell you you have to keep the law. In verse 25, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who are also reported the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than necessary than these necessary things. Not only is their decision scriptural, but I think it's also has filled with wisdom. How many rules have changed your life? How many rules have transformed you from the inside out? What does the speed limit do to you when it says it's 55 miles an hour? Or even on Interstate 25 where it says 75 miles an hour. It goes, there's a new law. It's called the five over rule, right? I'm going to go five over, and that's, a, that's what I'm going to do. And most rules, you know, let's just say, for sake of example, this piece of white tape, I don't know if you can see it that's here on the, on the stage, is a lot of times, if that's a rule or it's a standard, it just provokes inside of us our sin nature to say, I want to step over it, and it spurs on that, that rebellion. Like right now, if I were to tell you, do not think of a pink elephant. Do not think of a pink elephant. You're thinking of a pink elephant. You're a rebel. You're a lawbreaker, aren't you? See, law doesn't transform lives. It doesn't change lives. But love does. And when we look at the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he would die for our sins and rise again, that when we turn to him in repentance and faith, we do understand that we're a sinner and receiving Christ is not that we're just going to continue in this lifestyle of sin. We're coming to him, wanting to follow him and be a disciple of Christ. But it's love, not law. You know, there's rules that hopefully you keep inside of your marriage, but they're not based on law. They're not based on, well, I have to do this. Hopefully not. Hopefully it's out of love and out of relationship. So love goes a lot farther than the law. We look at verse 29, it says that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. So here's the letter, and now here's the delivery of the letter in verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. They're like, whew, we were sure hoping for this, you know? We're thankful that this is the decision that was made. Notice how careful they are in the delivery of the decision. And to me, this is part of resolving conflict, whether it's inside of the church or it's inside of a family. So there's a decision that's been made. They took the time to write it down. This is an important enough issue that they had to understand it and get it right. They wanted to make sure there wasn't misunderstanding, so they wrote it down. But they also didn't want them just to get it in the mail. They didn't want the postal service to just show up and say, here's the letter for this particular church. They wanted them to receive it in love. 
So they get the right information without misunderstanding and give it in love. So if you've got to give a decision to someone out of a conflict, this is a good model for us to say, I want to make sure it's clear. I want to make sure there's no misunderstanding and I want to take the time to deliver it in love. Verse 32, now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. We get kind of freaked out anytime that we see the word prophet because there has been a lot of abuses, self-proclaimed prophets, like I'm a prophet, you should listen to me. But prophet is someone that not just foretells the future, but it's also forth-telling the word of God. So these guys, Judas and Silas, they come and they're exhorting and they're strengthening the brethren with the right word. The gift of prophecy sometimes in a prophet, they exercise in giving that word from the Lord that someone needs to hear. The Lord gives them insight and they'll be able to speak those words of encouragement and speak those words of strength. Verse 33, and after they'd stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Now, please pay attention to this and let's discuss it for just a moment. In looking for God's guidance in our lives, sometimes he just makes it so evident that you can't miss it. It's like, here's this supernatural experience. And it's like, I know God spoke to me and this is what he has for me. Nothing wrong with that. And sometimes he does that. Other times we're praying and we're seeking God. We're praying, seeking God. And he doesn't give us this star in the sky type experience. It just seems good to us. We have peace of God. We go, yeah, I like it here. I could dwell here. My pastor growing up in Oregon, he started a church in Southern Oregon. And people would always ask him, they'd go, why did you choose Southern Oregon? What, what, what was it? Did God speak to you in a vision? Did, were you fasting and praying and had this deep spiritual experience? He says, no, I just really liked it here. <laughs> you know, it seemed good for me to, to be here. Maybe you're trying to decide, do I take this job or take that job? And you've been praying and seeking God and looking for intervention and the Lord hasn't answered. Maybe it's as simple as what Silas did. I really like this job over here. It seems good to work here. I could find myself working for this particular boss or, or this particular your company. Seek the Lord's guidance in any way that he wants to give it. But don't undermine sometimes that he leads in a very natural way. Silas stayed there because it seemed good to him because he liked it. In verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. What a great way to spend your time sharing the word of God, encouraging believers. We don't see this coming at the end of this chapter. This great unity, this great victory over a conflict, but yet the chapter ends with division. In verse 36, then after some days, Paul said to Barney, to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. The first missionary journey had ended. That's what we studied in the last two two chapters. They've been in Antioch for a while now, and they're wondering, how are the new believers doing? How are these churches doing? We want to go back and visit them and strengthen them. Great thing to do. Verse 37, now Barnabas was determined to take with them, John called Mark. Remember John Mark? He gave up in the first missionary journey. We don't know why, but he didn't continue with the journey. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. 
He's the one who went and found Paul and brought Paul into ministry when everybody was scared of him because of his past. So it makes sense that Barnabas would say, I want to give John Mark a second chance. Let's bring him along on this missionary journey that we're about ready to embark on. He's determined. Even though he's a son of encouragement, he can show determination as well. In verse 38, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So you've got a determined one and you've got an insistent one and they go kaboom over John Mark. Friction that, that takes place. Now who's right? Who's right in this? Was Barnabas right in giving John Mark a second chance? And if you are wired like a Barnabas, right now you're going, absolutely. Barnabas is right. Barnabas is right. And then if you're wired like an Apostle Paul, you're going, no, Paul was right. Paul was thinking this way. Ministry is invaluable. It's important. You can't take it lightly. John Mark needs to learn the seriousness of ministry. This division and this conflict takes place. I think they're both right. I don't think either one of them have an unbiblical approach to this decision with John Mark. So what happens in verse 39? Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. These great friends that have almost died together. Almost died. Paul was stoned and left for dead. They'd gone through so many difficulties together, seeing God move, seeing people come to know Christ as their Savior. At this point, they're going to part ways, and we don't ever see them coming back together in the Scripture over John Mark. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. That's how determined he is. John Mark's going to make it, and in fact, he did make it. We know that Paul at the end of his life, we just studied it in 2 Timothy, he said, bring to me John Mark because he's profitable to me in ministry. So they go off and they go to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicily, strengthening the churches. I think there's three things that we learn from this. The first is, godly people do disagree. That's something to understand. Two people that love God passionately and have surrendered their life completely to the Lord, they will, at times, have disagreement. And it'll, it'll take place. And if it's not over a sin issue, if it's not over a doctrinal issue like we just saw, we'll see that God even works in the midst of that. So that's an important understanding to know from just a surface level, is that godly people do disagree. We see this with Paul and Barnabas. And the second is, God directs through conflict and failure. It's not the most comfortable way that God directs, but he does direct through conflict and failure. God is working through John Mark's failure. God is working even through this conflict between John Mark, Barnabas, and Paul. You can probably look back in your life, your work life, serving in the church of God with the people of God, all aspects of your life, and go, you know what? I see God's hand even in the midst of conflict and failure, and I would have never been in this place with these group of people if it wasn't for this conflict, if it wasn't for this 
failure. And this brings us to the third point, and it's this. God triumphs disagreement. God triumphs disagreement. So the first was godly people do disagree. God directs through conflict and failure. And the third, God triumphs disagreement. How do we know? Because we had one missionary team before Acts chapter 15. Now at the end of this conflict, we've got two missionary teams. Barnabas goes out with John Mark, they're a missionary team. Paul goes with Silas, they're a missionary team, and God triumphs. Sometimes people won't go out without that kind of conflict. The friendship's just a little bit too comfortable. The memories are just a little bit too sweet. And maybe God was stirring Barnabas for a while to develop John Mark and to take him out in a new direction, but they were just having such a good time with Paul. And they couldn't imagine themselves parting ways from Paul. Our mission statement is be, make, send. And ideally, the send happens just beautifully, flawlessly. But there's times where it happens just like this. (laughs) And the Lord works in the midst of a conflict. And someone is sent out in a way where you go, man, it was a little rough. It was a little messy. But yet the Lord was faithful. And he worked. And he multiplied his ministry. You've probably found that in your life as well. You Maybe you were in one place in the kingdom of God and everything was just peachy keen. It was just rosy. It was just so right for so many years. And then something came up and it was like sandpaper on your soul. And I, I can't do this anymore. This guy Barnabas, I just can't walk with him anymore. You know, Paul going, uh-uh. And looking both ways. And the Lord's doing something. And he's directing. A lot of times, he has to make it uncomfortable where we are to get us to move to go to a new venture. So God does triumph in disagreement. I don't think that this is the ideal situation in Acts 15. But this is the human element. And we see a very human element in Paul and Barnabas. And you've got to hand it to both of them that they're passionate about the things of God. Amen? So here's a couple of conclusions. First is this. Is there a dispute that needs to be solved? A discussion, a decision, a delivery that needs to happen? You go, this is an essential. It's going to affect a relationship. It has an issue to do with sound doctrine. And pray that the Lord would give you wisdom to have that conversation and follow the model that we find in Acts 15. Make sure that there's no log in our, in our own eye before we go after the speck in someone else's eye. And then see God's faithfulness even in failed relationships. That God's working, even in the midst of a failed relationship between Paul and Barnabas. Maybe without Acts chapter 15, the early church would feel a little bit untouchable. And we go, you know, they've just arrived at some kind of plateau. They were so spiritual, they just kind of hovered everywhere they went. And they teleported, and they're just... But no, they're very touchable, aren't they? They had a very real dispute. And God worked a great decision and great unity. And then we see this failed relationship with Paul and Barnabas, but God's faithful. Would you stand with me and let's close in prayer together.